Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready for the most informative, well-thought-out hockey podcast on the internet? You are? Sorry. It's just Crown Conversations with your hosts, Robin P. and James Nicholson. Hello and welcome to Crown Conversations. Unfortunately, my co-host James is busy today, so I have downgraded him for a white guy with questionable taste, CJ Woodling, co-founder of Crash the Pond, formerly of Anaheim Calling. Still a Ducks fan, though. CJ, thanks for joining me. Much to your disappointment. Yes, <laughs> still Ducks fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We wouldn't be... We wouldn't have this, I don't know, quote-unquote friendly rivalry if, if you weren't a Ducks fan. True, and I, 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 and I think that like uh, the emphasis on the word friendly, working with um, you and uh, Sarah and like, you know, everybody at Jewels from the Crown and, and uh, um, elsewhere have been absolutely great. We've always had a great relationship. And then, you know, once the games actually start, then we hate each other temporarily. So, but it's been fun. Yeah, I find that's pretty true with most of the California blog people. It's like, you know, when the game's not in session, all right, I like you. When the game's in session, I can't stand you. Oh, yeah, exactly. And especially over since, like, the last decade or so, like, all three teams have generally been good and bad at relatively the same time. So it feels kind of like we're all in the ride together. As always, Anaheim is copying L.A., uh, but you know, I don't know exactly what Bob Murray's doing because it feels like Anaheim goes through these periods where they get just good enough to maybe be on the outside of the playoffs looking in, still kind of sucking most of the season and somehow building up enough points where they could almost maybe be good with one or two pieces or should they tear it down? Oh, they absolutely should tear it down. And that's been the biggest thing. If it makes you feel any better, Ducks fans have no idea what Bob Murray is doing either. Um, it's gotten to a point now where it's pretty clear that Bob Murray is in denial about the talent of the roster. Like going into this season, pretty much everybody could agree that, look, the Ducks, it's going to be really difficult for the Ducks to make the playoffs. At least anybody who was paying attention or kind of serious about them, right? Like we, 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 we were kind of like, yeah, we've got some good young pieces and there exists a scenario where if things break right, they can make the playoffs, but the likelihood of that happening isn't very great. And sure enough, look what happened. Although I think they're, you know, stumbling more than we had originally anticipated. And Bob Murray up until recently, and even recently tiptoeing around the whole rebuild question and we want to compete and the rest of us are basically like dude we know what you have here isn't enough compete we're just as confused as you how mad are ducks fans about shay theodore though if you want to make a ducks fan not necessarily like pissed off or angry but maybe angry at management 
Um, and if you want them to get extremely sad, bring up the Shea Theodore trade. Myself and my co-hosts and uh, co-founders at Crash the Pond, um, Jake and Felix, we both basically talked about this to death and we've essentially come to the conclusion that the Shea Theodore trade was probably the worst trade in Ducks history. Um, and that's among some pretty bad trades that this franchise has had. So um, it's still a better pill. And if he does end up winning Norris at some point, which I think is very likely, um, that trade is just going to be cemented as one of the worst trades in Ducks history. So that is still a fresh wound and probably will be as long as Bob Murray is still the general manager of this hockey club. You know, it's interesting. I always thought William Carlson would be a bitter pill for Ducks fans to swallow. And they're like, meh. You know, it's, it, it, it depends on who you talk to. The fan base tends to be pretty split on William Carlson. Um, some of them are very much like, yeah, that was one of the worst trades as well, given what ended up happening with him in Vegas. Um, but that being said, there's others who, like, you know, I'm I'm one of these people who doesn't necessarily fault the Ducks a ton for that, especially because Columbus couldn't really figure out what to do with him either. And um, William Carlson had like a nice start to his Ducks career. I think he had like two goals in his first couple of games with the, with the squad. Um, and then after that, even though it wasn't a big sample size, he just kind of vanished and became invisible. Um, and he had some decent tools, but I, I don't think like n- nobody looked at him and saw future star or future 20, 30 plus goal scorer. Um, Shea Theodore, we could all see, and Shea Theodore was actually pretty hyped as a prospect coming in. So that was completely different. William Carlson wasn't nearly as well known. Um, so it, it, it does depend. I think in hindsight, you'll find some people, uh, some Ducks fans who absolutely hate the William Carlson trade. I'm one of the people who doesn't necessarily isn't that bitter about that, that I think we think that was just one of those things that like, you know what, sometimes teams just try their best, genuinely miss some good talent. Sometimes there was late bloomers like Carlson was, and that's the way it shakes sometimes. But on the bright side, speaking of hyped up prospects, Trevor Zegras recently added to the team's taxi squad. That's right. Um, We are, uh, I, I think we are expecting him to possibly play tomorrow. Um, on Wednesday uh, against the Kings. So we may see his debut and then possibly even on, on Friday. I know that there is some um, rumors right now that Quentin Byfield may be making his NHL debut, I think, on Friday is what uh, I saw from John Haven. Could be earlier, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but definitely, uh, Zegris, we, uh, they sent him down to San Diego um, or Irvine slash San Diego where they're playing right now. And um, they did that because he was playing on the right wing here in the NHL. And the Ducks basically said to their credit, and we were all shocked by this because the Ducks team is horrible at communicating to the fan base. They sent him down and they had a whole statement from Bob Murray saying like, look, Trevor Zegers is our future star center and we want him to be at center, but we want him to learn the center position and the defensive responsibilities of it in a, le- in a less competitive environment in San Diego. So we're sending him down for a few games to get him adjusted to that position. Um, I personally would have tried him out at center at the NHL. And then if he struggled, sent him down, it's not the way I would have gone, but I think it was valid at the end of the day. And and I think we really appreciated the communication that management had for it. So with his addition back to the taxi squad, and especially because the goals don't play again until either Friday or Saturday, um, it was a good time to bring him up. Was he drafted as a center? I can't remember. Yes, he was drafted as a center. He was the 
Um, he was actually the team's, uh, so technically he was the U.S. National Development Program team's number three center, um, whereas Jack Hughes was obviously the top center, Alex Turcott was was the number two center. Um, but when uh, Turcotte went down with an injury um, for a good portion of that draft year, um, Zegris ended up stepping up and that's where his draft stock rose a ton because he really excelled in that role right behind Jack Hughes and especially on the power play. So yeah, he was drafted as a center. He's always been viewed as a center. Um, and uh, uh, just the, the, the right wing thing most came from him playing right wing um, with the World Juniors and with San Diego. Um, so he hadn't actually played center basically since he was at Boston University. So this was basically just to ease him back in. That actually makes sense. Right? I know. The Ducks did something that makes sense for a player's development. We're not really used to that. <laughs> An NHL team doing something good for a player's development and actually communicating that? What a concept. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if Quinton Byfield and Trevor Zegris make their debut. Well, Trevor Zegris has technically already debuted in the NHL. But if they play out, play against each other for the first time, because they're both very highly touted prospects. So it'll be very interesting to see what Akins and yeah. uh, McClellan do. Yeah, that's going to be fun. And, and we did see actually uh, at the AHL level, we did see a little glimpse of that. Uh, I think like a, a couple weeks ago, um, there was a, the, the rain and the goals went into overtime um, tied and uh, Zegris and Byfield were actually out on the ice at the same time. And I made a note of this. It was interesting because um, uh, Byfield got like a loose puck in the corner in the uh, Ontario rain end and Zegers was kind of hounding all over him. But it was insane because Byfield basically cut away really quickly to the right against the boards and immediately just exploded up ice and completely left Zegers in the dust. Like you could Field's elite skating ability shown on full display up there and nothing ended up coming of it and the goals ended up winning the game but that type of play like I watched that play on AHL TV and I thought oh that's why he went number two yeah high ceiling which is really interesting because you know everybody talked about should they take Stutzla who has been mm -hmm. a total stud for the Senators or should they take Byfield and of course you know they took Byfield and we'll never know, maybe 30 years down the road, once their playing careers are completely finished, if that was the right call or not. But, I mean, even then, you, you know, you, 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 it's the chaos theory, the what if. What if they had just won a few more games? What if they had ended up with the third overall pick or what, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will say that I am one of the people who believe that picking Byfield at second overall for the Kings was the right move over Stutzle. And despite some, you know, um, uh, conversation around that time that Stutzle may go before. And I think the main reason for that was that Stutzle was a better player at the time of the draft than Byfield was um, a much, definitely a higher floor than Byfield for sure. However, Byfield has a much higher ceiling than Stutzle. And Byfield went that early, number one, because he was so young. He was, the, I think, the youngest guy in that draft year. But the fact that he is the 6'4 dude who could skate like the wind and ha just had so much tremendous raw talent that even with the holes in his game, 
um, there was plenty of time to basically take that risk and you're, you're going for upside. So at the end of the day, I think Rob Blake and the, and the scouting department for the Kings made the right pick. We'll see what happens, as you said. Um, but as far as ceiling goes, Byfield was the play. You know, speaking of ceilings, um, I'm really curious to see Alex Turcott once he eventually makes his NHL debut. And being that he was an NTDB, NTDP uh, teammate of Trevor Zegris, I really want to see them. Like, we saw it a little bit with the rain and the goals, but I really want to see it when there's higher stakes and, you know, they're surrounded by better talent. Yeah, you know, I actually am like, as much as I'm excited for the byfield Zegers rivalry, I'm almost more excited for the Turcotte um, uh, Zegers rivalry. You know, Byfield, I think overall has a higher ceiling than Turcotte. And to be completely honest, I've been, I wouldn't say disappointed with Zegers or uh, Turcotte's play in the AHL. He just, he hasn't quite been as good as I would have hoped him to be. I would have liked to see a little bit more domination out of him. He's still young, though. I'm not worried by any stretch of the imagination. But primarily the reason why I'm interested in that rivalry and that matchup is the fact that Trevor Zegers and Alex Turcotte are both like really, really close. Like they're pretty much best friends. And so the fact that they were drafted by two teams, you know, two rival teams so close to each other, just down the five freeway from each other, um, you know, that personal um, knowledge and chemistry between the two, I really do think is going to add a little bit of an extra edge to their rivalry, um, especially when the Ducks and the Kings play each other once both of them are in the lineup full time. Um, I think just that little emotional depth, is, you you may see some of that um, uh, come up in the game when they play each other. I know. It's, it's always funny to me when like best friends get drafted to serious well I can't call the Ducks serious rivals but when they get drafted to rivalry teams it's it's funny because it's like I don't because they kind of see each other and they don't really know how to act at first and then as time goes on they kind of figure it out but it's it's always funny to see like these BFFs off the ice totally agree like the Ducks had a little bit of that too with like the brothers with Nick Ritchie and Brett Ritchie um, when they played against each other, there was always some extra, like they would hit each other. And obviously Nick Ritchie and Brett Ritchie aren't uh, afraid of hitting or, you know, uh, playing a little dirty. But you could definitely tell when they played each other, there was a little extra oomph behind some of their play. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of that as well uh, with Turcotte and Zegris. Uh, I can only dream of the future. I mean, like you said, um, you know, Turcotte has been kind of disappointing, but... It's interesting because they brought in Robleski, who was the the um, the national team coach, and so he's very familiar with Turcotte. So it's all about pushing the right buttons and pulling the right strings. And of course, as time goes on, and Turcotte has been learning how to be professional and learning to kind of play professionally with Robleski, because they're both rookies in a sense. Robleski is a rookie in the AHL. And then Turcotte is a rookie himself as a player. So, I mean, it's, it's been a ride. <laughs> we'll just, get, just seeing them both get adjusted to the pro level. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that's a really good point that you bring up because I think we as hockey fans and especially casual hockey fans – 
will see a lot of like they get a lot of survivorship bias i think right where you see players like connor mcdavid austin matthews nathan mckinnon these types of players who enter the league in their first year and immediately light it up and immediately become sensations right and the fact of the matter is that that just that's very rare that doesn't happen and that usually only happens with the elite of the elite or if you're outside of that like elite first overall it just kind of comes out of nowhere and is just so so rare so you know there are people who kind of look like recently the uh jamie drysdale for the ducks has been playing um up with the big club lately and he struggled for several games now he had a great first couple of games and then for some reason dallas akins decided to go galaxy brain on everything and put him on his offside playing with josh manson and play that pairing for a full two weeks while they got shelled night in night out um, and so, but he was still struggling and we kind of had to like step into people and we had to be like, look, coming out and being a star and being able to do this at 18, 19, even 20 years old is so, so rare and just doesn't happen very often. And most of these guys turn into great NHL players once they have a little bit more development time. The patience is absolute key, especially with prospects who have a proven history of success. Does that mean that they're going to be guaranteed to turn out like the way you would hope? No, not necessarily, but it's important a reminder it's an important reminder i think to practice patience with 99% of these prospects as they develop in the pros that's a really good point because our rookie defenseman Tobias Bjornfoot he's 19 um he's mm-hmm. very young and um they did not send him back to europe in his rookie year but so he has had time in the AHL to get adjusted to the NA to get to adjusted to the North American hockey, but you're right. These, these guys are like 18, 19 years old. They're trying to play this game that is literally only getting faster and better every year. And it's just like, could you do something amazing with your talent at 18, 19 years old without having some bumps here and there? No. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think even, like further to that point, I think it's incredibly important to consider their competition and the levels that they jump up on. You know, Alex Turcott and Trevor Zegras have basically had, other than Trevor Zegras making the NHL a little bit earlier, they both basically had the same development path. They went from the U.S. national development team to NCAA college, one year and done of NCAA, uh, of NCAA go to the world um, uh, juniors, um, to the AHL, and then to the NHL. Doing that as a 19 slash 20 year old and doing that all in essentially one, um, basically one to two years, that is an absolute massive jump in competition. Like if you want to be successful at the NHL level, right, you need to take your time. You generally need to build up to that. And if you want to be successful at the NHL right out of the gate as one of these young prospects, you need to be playing at an NHL level already at those lower levels and it's very very hard to do that given the competition like that is an absolute insane step up in the quality of competition that you're facing so nobody can blame Zegris Turcotte you know or Byfield or whoever Bjornfoot or whoever it happens to be um, for doing that because they're just seeing a type of competition that they've never seen before Mm -hmm. yep um so Jamie Drysdale I know he kind of had a rocky start, as we've mentioned. Uh, He seems to be getting better. What's your opinion of him from the last game? 
he looked pretty good last game. That was the best game I think he's had since probably his second game up in the NHL. Um, and a lot of that just had to do. And, and unfortunately, again, like I mentioned, I don't know why they decided to put Drysdale on his left side. And I'm one of these people who thinks handedness is very, very overrated. There are so many people who just harp so much on, oh, no, you can't put a righty on the left side. I generally think that's overrated. However, when it comes to a developing very young prospect, right, you need to put them in the best positions to succeed. That's what it's all about for developing these players. And if you put him on the left side and he struggles, then move him back to the right side. Find a way to do that. And for whatever reason, the Ducks didn't decide to do that. They decided to stick Drysdale on the left side. They wanted Josh Manson as his partner, specifically for Eakins and Murray, quote, saying they want Manson to protect um, Drysdale, which I don't like that reasoning whatsoever. But okay, let's say we go for that reasoning. Why not put the vet who has way more in it NHL experience and success on the left side on his offhand and put Drysdale on the right side in his natural position to try and develop in him and succeed more. We just don't get it and why they did that. So it's really unfortunate that Manson had to go down with an injury and that's what it took to break up the pairing. But it is kind of a blessing in disguise because now Drysdale gets to play on his right side and he's been paired with Hayden Fleury, the, um, uh, the new acquisition from Carolina that they got at the trade deadline. And those couple games, including uh, last night's game, um, he's looked a lot better as of late. So we'll see if that continues. Uh, yeah, Hayden Fleury. What was that all about? your idea is as good as us um i think you know it's it's pretty clear that uh, hayden flurry was behind um everybody else you know everybody knows about carolina stack defense they, 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 their reputation is already well documented and you know flurry was a se- former seventh overall pick um he's 25 so he's not that young anymore but he's still like a decent age right um and he's been a fine player but generally he's been a third pairing player at best um you know now with the ducks he's gonna see a little bit more of an elevated role now that he's no longer got the roadblocks behind him in carolina or in front of him in carolina um but that being said the ducks are an absolute garbage defensive team so it still remains to be seen what kind of um, situation he'll get out there. But I do like the pairing with Drysdale. I think Flurry has enough time in this league now and enough experience playing with a you know genuinely good Carolina Hurricanes team to impart some wisdom onto Drysdale. And I think especially because um, Flurry tends to be a he, – he's a pretty good skater – um, he's got some good two-way um, abilities to his game. Um, I think Drysdale is going to be much, much better than him when uh, push comes to shove. But I think as of right now, Flurry is a, is a pretty decent defense partner for him. Okay. Um, since we're on the topic of defense, Hampus Lindholm, how much do the Ducks miss him? Oh my God. Hampus Lindholm was on pace to like absolutely like wreck everybody as far as like best defenseman on the ducks before he went down with his injury. Um, you know, he's, he, he's working out now and he's coming back, but, um, there's no way he comes back before the end of the season. It's going to be in the best interest to just shut him down and make sure that he's okay. Um, but yeah, Hampus Lindholm was after probably a couple years of just kind of like Hampus Lindholm has never had a bad season in the NHL. Like he's always been the Ducks overall best defenseman by a long shot. Um, but the last couple of seasons, he wasn't particularly great. And I, you know, for whatever reason, multiple reasons for that. 
Um, but this season, before he went down, he was just on fire. He was on pace for a career high in goals scored. All of his underlying metrics were just phenomenal. Um, you know, he had been paired with Shattenkirk, and Shattenkirk's been a little bit, you know, kind of up and down with the Ducks, but um, they looked like really good partners together. So um, I do think that, you know, the Ducks were never going to have a great defense this season, and we all knew that going in. Um, but it certainly would have been much better and much improved if they had had Lindholm in the lineup for most of the season. Um, now, moving more towards the back, Anthony Stolarz, he sort of, his reputation coming into uh, when he came to the Ducks was not, was not that great, but he seems to be performing overall pretty well for them. Yeah, he is. Um, you know, he's had a, a, a rough game here and there. Um, I think that, um, he, you know, he's definitely, he, he's not a starter. Let's put it that way. He, I, he's not a starter. Um, I don't think he will ever really be a starter, barring some insane late career explosion from him. Um, but I do believe he has earned a spot as the Ducks backup goalie next season. Um, Ryan Miller, you know, we love Ryan Miller so much and what he's given to this franchise and, and uh, everything that he's meant as, uh, you know, the elder statesman for the last few years here. But realistically, he, I mean, he's been awful this season, and I think he's pretty much done. He'll likely retire at the end of the season. So the Ducks are going to need a new backup behind um, John Gibson. And eventually when uh, Lucas Dostal is ready for full-time duty, um, you know, they'll, they'll still need somebody there. So um, I think Stolarz has basically proven to be a capable backup to spell injuries, um, to take a couple games to rest somebody. Um, I think that the Ducks definitely, I think he's on a one-year deal right now. So um, I know me and a lot of other fans would like to see him maybe sign for, um, you know, at least another year, if not two or three years to kind of be the Ducks full-time backup, um, you know, because he's, he's earned it and he's, he's performed admirably. So you're telling me it's not wise to play John Gibson 82 games. God, I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have been yelling about that for so long. And I think, Lately, there have been signs that show that the Ducks are finally starting to get that. They're basically in a full-blown three-goalie rotation right now. You know, part of that's probably due to the fact that they're, you know, one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the NHL now. Um, so there's no reason to try and ride John Gibson. Um, but that being said, you know, I think we've all kind of considered in a normal 82-game season, you really don't want Gibson playing any more than 55, 60 games. Um, I think at that point, and, you know, we're heading into an era in the NHL where playing a goalie for 70, 80 games clearly is not a good thing anymore. Um, the game is too fast. Um, it's too demanding of a position. And unless, you know, health science or sports science gets, gets way better, um, it's, it's just it's not going to work for them. So um, you need somebody who's going to be able to take uh, several more games. And you're definitely going to want um, somebody who can handle that and not overwork your number one starting goal. Look, you're seeing that right now with Carey Price, right? With Montreal, like Price, elite, but they lean on him so much for the Habs. And now he's basically getting injured and he's just not nearly himself. Frederick Anderson is going through the same thing in Toronto. You know, it's funny because a lot of Ducks fans are like, you know, Frederick Anderson, low key, not that good. Which is complete horse crap. Like, Frederick Anderson is a great goalie. Gibson, in my firm opinion, is better than Anderson. I, I, I firmly believe that the Ducks made the right call 
um, to trade Anderson. It was definitely tough between the two of them but at the end of the day it's what was needed um and now again like and people are forgetting too frederick anderson for his first few years in toronto put up fantastic numbers toronto had had horrible goaltending for years and he stabilized that position for the first time in a long time but you're at this point now where he's getting injured and he's being overworked and you're basically seeing kind of what happened with john gibson um a couple of seasons ago when you know he was just bawling out for the first like 30, 40 games, and then the weight of the team suck collapsed over him um, in terms of like defensive abilities. And now they just don't have it anymore. So the goalie workload is definitely a thing. And Frederick Anderson's a good goalie. He was just overutilized in Toronto. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, this Ducks squad is <laughs> it's very young. I think I told um, he's Steven, who is still with Anaheim Calling. Um, I think I told him, I was like, this is basically the goals with like this three <laughs> guys who were born in 1990 or earlier. <laughs> like this, what? How is this team struggling so much and they're so young like isn't the infusion of youth what is supposed to save the team yeah so there's two main answers to that the number one answer and i would believe is the kind of the the biggest culprit is that um bob murray has completely overvalued his prospects um sam Steele, max jones max comtois um, Jacob Larson, a lot of these young guys who were drafted in like the first round or like early second round who had really great junior or AHL success. Um, it, it's important to remember that Bob Murray sold the Samuelis, the Ducks owners, on this group of players kind of becoming the next core and leading them back to the championships, um, back to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the problem with that is that, again, they're late first round picks and late first round picks don't often become stars, right? And late first round picks, if they do make the NHL, most of the time it's good to expect them to be maybe like middle six people, um, bottom, you know, four pairing, you know, type of, 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 a, of a situation. Um, but like, for instance, Sam Steele is a perfect example of this. Sam Steele um, had a record-breaking uh, season in the WHL, his, uh, his draft plus one year. Um, after the Ducks had drafted him, he scored like 140-something points in like 70 games. It was absolutely insane. Um, but then he never repeated that. And again, he was a late first-round pick for a reason. And, the, and the, the projection on him was always like, look, middle six center, ceiling potentially could be first-line center, but it's certainly not guaranteed. 
And I think Bob Murray bought into the hype of these players way too early, sold it as this, you know, next big thing. And then when the players either didn't take the step forward, misstepped, or have been playing at about as expected, like Max Comtois right now has played about as expected, you know, decent shooter, 20 plus goal guy. Um, But those types of players, you can't make a team full of middle six players and expect to compete in the playoffs. That's just not how it works. So that's number one is that we think that he completely overvalued that. And we did see, and we have seen multiple examples of that. And I could talk forever on that. Number two, the other big reason why um, the Ducks are terrible, (laughs) uh, despite having a younger roster, is that they have so many vets who they have refused to move on from. We're talking Ricard Raquel, Josh Manson. You could argue Ricard Raquel, um, uh, or sorry, you could argue um, for Cam Fowler, for a few others. You uh, you could especially argue um, for um, Adam Henrique and Jacob Silverberg. And all of these players that I've listed, they're good hockey players, right? Like, like they're all good hockey players. They bring great stuff to the table. They're, they're, they're the type of players that I think every NHL team is going to need. The problem is that they're all kind of middle-of-the-road players. Like Jacob Silverberg, Adam Henrique are all basically um, uh, um, middle six guys. Right, they're not stars. They're gonna max out. They're gonna max you out at probably fifty points a year. Um, Ricard Raquel realistically is a second line winger who scores twenty plus goals a year. If you put him with an elite center, he could score over thirty. Um, but again, none of these guys are really like stars or game breaking players who are gonna get you to that next level. Um, they're guys who are right in the middle, and they're getting older. They're either in their primes or they're exiting their primes, and yet the Ducks are still terrible as it is, and they need to start moving on to the next situation. That's why so many Ducks fans were so upset when basically nobody, none of these guys who were signed to contract extensions were moved on from. Bob Murray is still signing these players, and he's still bringing these players and keeping this core on of players who would be good for a team that's contending now, not for a team that's trying to rebuild, get younger, and get better. So even though they're all in their mid to late 20s, they're not going to help the team in the next contending window. And he's insisting on keeping them for God knows what reason. So those are the main two instances why they're basically terrible right now, um, despite having some young, decent pieces. You know, it's interesting that Ricard Raquel has fallen out of favor with Ducks fans because I remember as recently as last year, he always seemed to get up and get like the California games, like those big rivalry games against the Sharks and the Kings. Like he was always kind of one of the more clutch players, but it seems like he's sort of fallen off the way a little bit as he's starting to exit his prime. I mean, he's not old by any means. No. Um, what if, like 20, 27, 28. Um, mm-hmm. He'll be 28 this um, in a few days. Um, so he's not old, but he is kind of starting to exit his prime. Like he's really hit his peak, physically speaking. Yes. And and that was one of the big reasons why, like, I'm a huge Ricard Raquel fan. I have a Raquel jersey. He was one of my um uh, uh you know first like earlier once I could start having enough money to buy my own jerseys when you know he was really coming out and starting to breaking out. He was one of my first jerseys that I purchased. And here's the thing too, is that Raquel hasn't fallen out of favor from Ducks fans who maybe pay attention to underlying numbers and analytics a little more because all this season, Ricard Raquel has been one of the best 
um, players on the team in terms of underlying shot generation, playmaking. Um, he, he was basically rocking something like a 2% shooting percentage um, through the first several games of this year. And that just wasn't going to fly. Like he was essentially completely snake bitten or playing with bad teammates, but he was always playing really well for most of the season. Um, the goals just weren't coming. The points weren't necessarily showing up on the board. And a lot of us were kind of screaming about that at the beginning, like, Hey, yo, be patient with Raquel. He's going to come around. And sure enough, he did like, especially in the middle of the season. And, and lately he's, he's actually been, you know, fairly productive. So he's kind of come back with that. But, um, you know, again, one of the things that we were talking about is that Ricard Raquel has one more year on his deal after this season. And again, as we just talked about, he doesn't fit age wise, skill wise, prime wise into the ducks, you know, next, um, contention window if they want that contention window to be within the next two three years like they're planning and so he's due for a you know a a nice little raise because he was on a steal of an rfa contract that we had signed him to and it's just the the contract his skill and his value as a player um that's a former 30 goal scorer and who still has good numbers could get the Ducks back quite a bit especially for a team looking for two playoff runs from him and at the end of the day Bob Murray decided not to move him. Whether that's because he was asking too much, which we think is very likely that he tried to ask for superstar prices for a guy like that when he doesn't demand superstar prices, or because you know maybe he just didn't shop him seriously enough and wanted to hang on to him. I don't know what it was, but a lot of us were like, look, it would have sucked to see Raquel go, but at the end of the day, it's what should have been the move for them because it just made too much sense. And again, Bob Murray decided not to do it. Yeah, I could probably see a little bit of both situations happening. Uh, The nostalgia of what Raquel has meant to the Ducks team, who are sort of technically not rebuilding, but sort of kind of are-ish. That's a good way to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the nostalgia of what he's meant to the Ducks over these last several years, he's been so good for them. And it kind of makes sense to hang on to him to shepherd in the next wave of, of youth that are that are coming in to help the Ducks. Except that, as you mentioned, th- these youths, yeah, I love them. They try hard, but I mean... Max Comtois and Matt and Jones, they probably shouldn't be in your top six. No, and, and, and they shouldn't be. Like in an ideal world, these guys would be, you know, kind of bottom six players. Um, I, I think we've talked about this before, but like the fact that most NHL coaches and general managers refuse to have a good fourth line and they want to have a fourth line that's like a checking energy grit fourth line is just infuriating like use all your spots for roster players and divide ice time up evenly like this isn't that difficult of concept right (laughs) but like in 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 an ideal world you know these guys would be playing in the bottom six getting sheltered minutes you know they they, they, we wouldn't expect the ducks to win i don't think you know most fans in the in the ducks fan base are, are don't really care about the losses anymore like we've accepted the team and we know that they're bad um we just want to see good decisions we want to see Dallas Akins and Bob Murray get the most out of the roster that they've been given. We want them to see make smart strategic moves towards the future for the development of these younger players and for future assets so this club can get back to being competitive again and compete for a Stanley Cup. 
And we just haven't been seeing that at all for the most part. 95% of the decisions that this organization has made appear to have no logic whatsoever or the logic behind them is that they're still trying to be good and try and win games and make the playoffs. And that's just a complete, you know, that's just being completely in denial. Yeah. When uh, I talked about this on my last podcast with James and Sarah, but it, it kind of seemed like when Rob Blake first took over the Kings after Lombardi uh, was fired, it, it almost felt like he was sort of in denial because it's like, oh, well, they, they still have mileage left on these tires. Like they, they could make a run, but that was the ill-fated Ilya Kovalchuk signing. And <laughs> I have been screaming to the heavens since probably 2013, 2014, that you need to have fewer Nick DeLaurier's, fewer Curtis McDermott's on your roster. Give more to guys who, sure, they can be, quote, gritty, grindery, but they need to be people who can score. I want to see a team like the Lightning where they do have, like, the one or two guys that you're like, why is this guy on the roster? But overall, they have so much skill from front to back. And you're just like, uh, who, how how do we defeat these guys? Like, you, you see that yeah. they're seeing like champions for a reason. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with Vasilevsky. But they're just, they're so skilled from top to bottom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it even, like, an even better example kind of of what you're getting at here were um, the St. Louis Blues, the cup champion St. Louis Blues in 2018, right? Like the Blues were a team, or sorry, 2019, I think they were. Um, the Blues were a perfect situation. And I remember when they won because so many like old, you know, 200 hockey men, you know, type of guys came out and said, oh yeah, you see how much St. Louis, uh, St. Louis hits and how much grit they have and what a rough game they've had. Skill games overrated, hits are coming back. And everybody ha- kind of had to come back to them and be like, yeah, they're big, they hit, they play a gritty game, but guess what? They also move the puck really well. They're also very skilled. They do everything that a modern hockey team should do. Plus, they add in a little bit of that whole grit equation, right? And I think we had, uh, like, this kind of came up the other day on um, Twitter. This was a whole conversation that happened in hockey Twitter where grit, unfortunately, has gotten a bad rap over the last few years. And it's been used by a bunch of uh, general managers and coaches to excuse playing bad players who do nothing but either hit or protect teammates or something along those lines, right? Grit in and of itself is not a bad thing whatsoever. And I think that a grit is a great trait to have in a hockey player. It just can't be the only trait in a hockey player. Um, A perfect example of a skilled, gritty player, in my opinion, is Sidney Crosby. You've, there are people who um, have called Sidney Crosby the um, the greatest grinder of all time. And if you watch Crosby, he plays a hard game. He's really good in the boards. He can hit when he wants to. He can play that kind of gritty, gritty game. But he's got this elite skill to go along with it, the, the elite vision. He's got a great shot. Like He pretty much doesn't have a weakness in his game, but he also brings the grit. So the problem is when you have grit as their sole best um, trait – and they don't bring anything else to the table. And that's kind of one of the situations, like you said, with Curtis McDermott, with Nick Delorier, um, with a few other players like that over the years, 
that it, it kind of becomes this cover-up term. And realistically, it's been hijacked by these poor coaching decisions. And realistically, it should be part of the player evaluation model. It just shouldn't be the only thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. You want somebody who is able to go into the corners, but at the same time, you still need them to score. So, yep. I mean, this is where Kings fans are at with Alex Ayafalo. He just signed a three-by-three -three contract, which is pretty fair deal in my opinion. And it's, it's a really fair deal for him. He's not the world's most skilled player, but he does bring that great in-depth, which has served him well on the top line playing beside Kopitar. The only... Well, not the only, but I'd say probably the biggest flaw in his game really is that he doesn't score enough. However, playing with an elite center like Kopitar allows him where he doesn't necessarily need to score because he's what I call the golden retriever. He goes into the corner, he wins those puck battles, and he comes back with the puck, which frees up Kopitar so that Kopitar doesn't have to clone himself and do everything on the ice, <laughs> including scoring. Yeah, I love that, by the way, the Golden Retriever. You know, the, the, um, Max Jones for the Ducks is a very, very similar player. Um, I still think Max Jones has a good shot and could use it more, but he's turning into this type of player who really isn't necessarily going to be your primary player driving scoring type of guy but he is a guy who I think can complement very well um, to a good center on a top six who's going to be able to go into the corners retrieve those pucks he's going to be able to get it to you and most importantly he's going to enable you to play in the offensive zone which is one of the most important things to measure for successful hockey teams all the best hockey teams are players are teams that can sustain play in the offensive zone and get chances and not be on their heels the entire time. And you have guys who they may not necessarily be great at putting the puck into the back of the net. They may not necessarily be elite passers, but they get into the right spots. They're good at retrieving pucks from the puck battles. They're good in the boards. They're good at ensuring that the play stays in the offensive end. Max Jones is one of those players. That's the type of player that Ayak Salafalo is since I have seen him in the, in the samples that I have seen him. And that's a player you should value as such. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. From what I know of Max Jones, that's definitely one thing that the Ducks love about him is that he definitely has that he can match his skill and his grit. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think the Kings and the Ducks have three more games after this. So what's your mm -hmm. to end the season? Because, of course, they put all the games together at once. Because why not? <laughs> um, let's give them a playoff without giving them the playoffs. Uh, so what do we got right now? Um, where we have three games left. You have taken the first well, kind of two. There was that one last week. And then there was the break. And then back. So let's, let's just consider this the four-game series. Um, I will say that the Ducks will pick up one of these games and the Kings will remain, uh, win the remaining two. So I think of the final four games that the Ducks and Kings play against each other. I personally think it's going to be three to one Kings. Yeah, I can see that. I think probably the Kings will lose either Wednesday or Friday night. They're I can see that. It, it's going to be one of those middle games and then they're going to come back and be mean to the Ducks. 
honestly do it because at this point we're in full-blown tank mode so we're <laughs> like you know what take it i don't care <laughs> you know what that's what I saw a lot of Ducks fans cheering when both Cal Peterson and Jonathan Quick were unavailable, and we had to have um, the Goose, Troy yep. Grosnick. <laughs> and they were like, yes, come on, come on, do it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's – so this isn't being talked about enough just because the Ducks aren't a team that gets talked about in the national media or anything like that. Um, the Ducks are only two points ahead of the Buffalo Sabres in the standings right now like and and buffalo has been playing better um than the ducks as of recently there exists a very real possibility that with uh I, how many games are left i think like six or seven games are left in the season uh maybe seven or eight um there exists a very very real possibility that the ducks finish as the worst team in the nhl um, it, it was so funny because for a long time, like I was saying that there's no way that the Ducks are going to outsuck the Sabres. Like, yeah, the Ducks are terrible, but at least they're not the Sabres. And now I'm kind of looking at the standings like, uh, I may have spoke too soon. <laughs> Tony Granato, he has really uh, changed the, the, the Sabres around. Yeah, I think the the Sabers needed that just purely from a mental and emotional perspective. I mean, it's it, it has to be miserable in Buffalo right now for everybody. And I don't care if you're Jack Eichel or you're um, Linus Olmark or you're you know who whoever on that team. And obviously, we saw you know kind of what Taylor Hall had to say after he was traded to the Bruins, but. I, that just had to be such a terrible environment. I wouldn't necessarily say toxic, but just so bad for your mental health, knowing you're that bad and it feels like there were no way out and having Tony Granato come in and it, it, if not necessarily make them a good team, but at least make them like respectable and have them something to play for and inject a little bit of energy back in that lineup. Um, I have to say, I, I, I think that it's great that they do have that right now with him. Yeah, I saw that at the trade deadline. It was a common theme from former Sabres where they were like, yeah, everything sucked. And then Cammy's older brother came in and it didn't suck as much, but it still sucked. <laughs> That's basically what it was like when um, uh, after Randy Carlisle was was fired for the second time around, even though Bob Murray was back there. It, it, it was funny. There were a bunch of players who kind of came back and were like, yeah, the mood has definitely changed and the, the things are a lot lighter and um, you know, was something that was really funny. We got, um, I, I can't say who it was, but, um, we heard from a Ducks player, um, that somebody was, uh, asked them like off the record, like, Hey, what, um, um, did Randy Carlisle like actually change and try to modernize his systems when he was rehired for the second time? And the player basically said, he said, yeah, for the first month, <laughs> that was basically the response for it. Um, and so you could, pretty clearly tell after that that it didn't go very well and once he was let go there was a new renewed sense of uh um let's call it hope in the room well if the ducks are tanking should the should they bring back randy carlisle for a third time <sighs> screw it i don't care <laughs> let's go full chaos <laughs> he, he's still with the organization carlisle is uh, supposedly working as like a scout and an advisor to bob murray well so was daryl sutter which was random. Well, he was until he took the, the, the Calgary job, but yeah. Yeah, Calgary uh, doesn't look like they're going to make the playoffs. Nope, I uh, really don't know why Sutter got another chance over there. I think he's, yeah, 
whatever. <laughs> his playing, I mean, sorry, his coaching style, it really went out of style in 2014. Yep. Like, I can't believe it worked in 2014, but... It, I think I think 2014 was the last year that that style would have been successful. Because yep. it was, like, right after that. It was, like, 2015, 2016 that the... Um, you know, the, the fast speed skilled, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, less defensive hockey, more offensive hockey that started, you know, getting pushed a lot by like Joel Quenville and the new Toronto Maple Leafs and all that stuff that, that that's when that came into play. So I think he got in like right at the end there in 2014. Well, Connor McDavid was drafted in, um, what was it? 2015, 2016, 2015, so, 2015. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I'm not saying his entrance into the league changed anything, but, <laughs> but right I'm not not saying that. <laughs> exactly. He comes in, changes, offends the whole hockey world, and then like a couple years later, here comes this little superstar, Nate. Well, he's not little, but here comes this guy from Cole Harbor, some McKinnon <laughs> person, and then all of a sudden you start to see coaches really leaning in to the skill a lot more now that you've got the Connor McDavid's and the this Nathan McKinnon and there's like this influx of really good players. Yeah, I, I would say that like specific I would say specifically Connor McDavid is what got people's eyes to open and start examining it. Um, Nathan McKinnon certainly helped. I would actually say it was the immediate success of Austin Matthews that really was the thing that kind of tipped it over the edge, right? Like Connor McDavid, everybody was like, oh, wake up. It's starting to go. It's starting to go. And then once Austin Matthews, the year after, started doing that, everybody kind of went, okay, it's a new era. Uh, well, I hope it stays. I really don't want yes. the NHL to regress. Oh, no. It's so much more fun this way. It is. Screw Daryl Sutter's hockey. Exactly. Um, one thing I did want to mention be, before we leave here, um, and um, I am going to make a lot of Kings fans very, very happy with what I'm about to say here. And I wanted to say this since I'm on a Kings podcast. Um, I actually firmly believe that the LA Kings, um, uh, my bold hot take prediction, the LA Kings will win another Stanley Cup before the Ducks do again. Ooh. I believe uh, I am, it hasn't, you know, been perfect, as you said, especially in the beginning. Um, but to me, Rob Blake is doing a rebuild exactly how you should be doing a rebuild. Um, the way I've explained it to a lot of people is that, you know, Bob Murray, he's like hanging on to these pieces. He's got good players and stuff like that, but he's not willing to make the kind of big decisions, the big trades, the um, uh, the, the things necessary, make the sacrifices necessary in order to gain great assets to build up and develop and make a cup champion again. Um, he's not really willing to do that, but he has gotten some good players. So Rob Blake is though, and we've seen that with trading for, I mean, you can argue with Jeff Carter, you know, but, um, specifically like the Alex Martinez trades, um, the, um, you know, s several of these trades and, and these, um, choices that, Rob Blake has made and some of the great drafting as well. Like the Kings prospect pipeline is absolutely loaded right now. Um, to me, the way I put it is this Bob Murray is rebuilding the ducks to be playoff contenders again. 
Rob Blake is rebuilding the Kings to be cup champions again. And I think those are two very different things. Um, and to me, Rob Blake is the one who is doing it right. And he is leaving Bob Murray in the dust at the current moment. We will see what happens. Obviously anything can happen in the future. Um, but that is my bold prediction. The Kings will win a cup again before the before the Ducks. Well, you never know. The captain down in Anaheim might actually lead them back to another cup. We'll see. Gets off. He's 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 having a nice season. He's he's still pretty pretty good, and I think he's I think he's accepted. And and by all reports from what we've heard, he's actually really enjoyed. Um, he's actually generally enjoyed this season mostly because he's very much accepted his role as the elder statesman and kind of the dad to the kids. And he's turns out he really likes mentoring the kids and and bringing them forward. Um, so I think that it's. Uh, it's really good to see that happen and he's still playing some decent hockey, but he knows he's not the number one guy there anymore. So um, we'll see what happens if he's still around enough and still decent enough to be back when the ducks make it back to the playoffs, whenever that happens to be. Mm. Very interesting. Well, CJ, thanks for joining me and I hope you have fun in Hawaii. Thank you so much. I am so excited. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a blast.